Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of an eight-part series on Jewish philosophy recorded in 2020 in Melbourne as part of a Zoom series for Caulfield Shul. In this lecture, David makes reference to a number of graphics that he uses. For listeners of the podcast who would like to see those graphics, please visit the webpage for this episode where you will find the Zoom lecture as a YouTube video. As has been stated, this is going to be an eight-week journey The class is going to be about 45 minutes long, so we have to be uh, very tight with that because there is so much material. And I've had to uh, choose uh, some highlights that give us an overview and an understanding and a framework of Jewish philosophy. So let's get right into it. And I have to warn you, as I always warn people when we study philosophy or when we study uh, this kind of thing, is that we're going to be dealing with ideas. So if ideas scare you, or if you find them too hard, then take it slow and we can, and you can do some extra reading on what I'm talking about. Or maybe you might decide that philosophy is not for you, but I think it is very exciting and it's incredibly informative. We also have to realize that I want to make a specific definition of Jewish philosophy. Because a lot of people have a very ambiguous concept of what philosophy is. Every taxi driver has a philosophy on the world that he's happy to share with you particularly in Israel. Philosophy is a more uh, concrete and specific discipline when we talk about capital J, capital P, Jewish philosophy. We're talking about Jewish contributions to the discourse and discussion known as philosophy. And what is philosophy? Philosophy, first of all, it's not really a Jewish exercise. And that's kind of why it's interesting to do a journey through Jewish philosophy. Philosophy really was started by a people that we know as the Greeks. And uh, the ancient Greeks, you know, uh, hundreds, uh, two and a half thousand years ago, really, Greece was just entering into its golden age uh, of philosophy. And philosophy is really the study of what we can know about the world and about reality using our mind. And we as human beings have this incredibly amazing, precise, rational instrument in our heads called the mind. And what can the mind tell us using tools like logic, language, mathematics, and observation? What can we know about the world in an ultimate sense? And the reason why that's not really a Jewish exercise, it's not like Jewish people don't like to use their minds. It's that Jewish uh, thought has always relied in the ultimate sense on a totally different way of knowing things. And that, of course, is revelation. We can use our minds to do all sorts of clever things, but what the world actually is, and what it's made, and what it's for, and all of the things that compose reality, we, uh, the Jewish people, have always relied ultimately on revelation as the source of ultimate knowledge, and not the mind. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Judaism and Jewish thought engages with philosophy, but we must remember that it is first and foremost a reactive project. That is, 
that the world comes up with ideas about reality that it would seem to accord with logic and observation and Jews need to respond to that where there are challenges to our traditional way of seeing the world based on revelation. So we need to always bear that in mind that I'm going to be looking primarily at what are the challenges arising from philosophy and who are the Jewish philosophers coming to try and mediate those challenges. And we need to remember, as I said, that it starts really uh, not with us. This project of understanding reality through the mind starts with the Greeks. I mean, there, there were some Indians and some Chinese sitting around thinking about things. It's not only the Greeks, but the classic paradigm of Western philosophy as we understand it starts uh, in Greece in uh, 5-600 BCE and eventually they, starting with various observations, uh, mathematical and others, they eventually arrive at some fundamental questions and one of the questions that's really bothering, and I have to spend uh, just a few minutes backgrounding this because unless we background what the concerns of ancient philosophers were, it's hard to understand how we react to it. So I need to spend some time just looking at that. Obviously, those of you who are familiar with philosophical discussions will realize that I am summarizing obscenely and reducing uh, to very, very core elements. But I think that there is a way in which we can understand this uh, even in great summary. And that is that what the Greeks are, one of the things that the Greek philosophers, the ancient Greek philosophers were concerned about was the question of why there are so many different things in the world. If you think about it, the world is matter, it's substance. There really should only be one substance. Why are there different substances? What causes those changes and what is there underlying all that? A fundamental substance. So many people are contributing and thinking about this until you eventually get to the guy who's called the father of Greek philosophy, who is, of course, Thales. And he tells you, oh, yes, don't you worry. It's all one substance. It's actually water. And then people are discussing that and so on, different options. And eventually we get to another big daddy of Greek philosophy, a guy we've all heard of called Heraclitus. And Heraclitus is telling you, you know what? There is only one thing going on, and that is change. You know, you never step in the same river twice. If you want a fundamental element that would symbolize that, it would be fire. But really, uh, everything's in a state of flux. Everything is constantly in change. Then we go further, and we get another massively influential Greek philosopher called Parmenides, who comes along very enigmatically and cryptically and says, everything is one. Everything is one. And people go, ah, everything's one, but I see all sorts of different things going on. Parmenides, he says, look, I'm going to leave that question for others. And others indeed do come along. And that is the discussion that is happening until, of course, the huge figure of Socrates. Socrates drives Greek philosophy in a kind of a, a different a paradigmatic direction, searching through questions to find the real meaning behind terms, looking at ideal concepts like justice and truth and what they actually mean. In other words, to set the discourse on its proper basis before we can even discuss other issues. And now we get to the point where there is a divergence in Greek thought that is going to be very, very influential for the next couple of millennia. 
and that is the divergence between Socrates' great student Plato and his student Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle, you've all heard of them and you think, ah, oh, great philosophers from the ancient world, what have they got to do with me? But I can tell you that the fundamental discussion between Plato and Aristotle is still very much ongoing, as it was then, and I'm going to summarize that. And I know that you're sitting there thinking, well, this is Jewish philosophy. Why is he telling us about Plato and Aristotle? Because... <laughs> It's very difficult to have any entry into any aspect of philosophical discussion without understanding the basic distinction between the approaches of those two great thinkers. Uh, and I'm reminding those who are already a little confused that Plato uh, and Aristotle were not Jews. Uh, they were, in fact, uh, ancient Greek philosophers running around with foreskins, etc. But they were phenomenally, phenomenal thinkers. And the basic distinction between Plato and Aristotle, and people have discussed this for thousands of years, but I'm going to reduce it to about 15 seconds worth of observation. And that is that, basically, at the end of the day, with tremendous complexity and uh, sophistication of discussion, but at the end of the day, Plato is asking us, when we are attempting to understand an ultimate reality, Plato is asking us to make a mental movement away from what we observe here towards a higher reality, a more perfect and ideal reality, what he calls a realm of ideal forms. There is a perfect form of everything somewhere in some transcendent realm. Uh, Plato's famous analogy of the cave uh, and where we're just seeing the flickering shadows of those perfect forms on the walls. Plato wants us to stand up and walk out of the cave and attempt to perceive that ultimate reality. Whereas Aristotle is asking us, in the ultimate sense, to make a movement into this reality, to explore, to analyze, to categorize, to define, and to understand this reality, and to uh, process and to deduct the universal forms of what's going on from what we observe here. Now... I have actually a, uh, I have a, I'm going to just share this for a second. So I've, in, in basic summary, Plato is asking us to look up there and Aristotle is asking us to look into here. And armed with that, armed with that, we can uh, now start to look at some of the major issues and the the real person and, and philosophical uh, thought system that I want to look at today because it's incredibly influential and it, it picks up really from that distinction. Aristotle is important, uh, but Aristotle was not as influential as Plato for the first 1500 years after them. Aristotle really makes his big resurgence in the high middle ages at this stage, in, for the next few centuries after Plato and Aristotle, everybody's really quite obsessed with Plato. And Plato is developing ideas because the idea that there is a, a realm of ideal forms uh, and one that we can contemplate and attempt to understand it is a very encompassing philosophy and it fits well with a lot of the spiritual and religious systems that are developing in the world at this time. 
Platonic thought itself is developing, and we go through various schools of early Platonism, middle Platonism, late Platonism, which is going to become Neoplatonism, and so on. We will look at these. But just bear in mind this distinction that Plato makes. And for Plato, part of his problem is, is that there is no real contact that is brought out in Plato's philosophy between this higher realm and this earthly reality of corruption and plurality that we see. Now, <laughs> that's not going to affect the Jews very much. They're sitting around, they're doing their thing. It's the time of the Second Temple. But we are always absorbing different ideas and reacting to them. And in the first century, in the first half of the first century, we get the person who is regarded by, by generally as the first Jewish philosopher. He's the first Jewish philosopher, not because he's the first Jew to have an idea, but because he's the first Jewish thinker to respond directly to the challenges and the findings of the official discussion in philosophy. And that, of course, is someone called Philo of Alexandria, sometimes pronounced Philo, sometimes Philo, uh, Philon in the Greek. I'm going to call him Philo, but many people refer to him too. And as I said, Philo is living in the first century. And so I'm going to show you what that means. Now, Philo lives at the beginning of what we call the Talmudic period, which is a period from around about zero to, uh, to 500. And you can see here, the temple is destroyed here. There's Bar Kokhba. There's the publication of the Mishnah. So these are things that are familiar to students of Jewish history. So we can place Philo just here at the beginning of the first century. And Philo is living in Alexandria. And Alexandria was like the New York of its day. Incredibly cosmopolitan, large, vibrant Jewish community. Lots of things going on. And Philo was kind of like one of the major intellectuals, even a spiritual uh, leader as well of Egyptian Jewry. We don't have time today, unfortunately, to go into Philo's incredible history. In other words, his own biography, which is astonishing. Some of the documents that he wrote we still have, which show his uh, involvement in, in the world at large, in political delegations, the famous delegation to Gaius, which he led. We know that he visited Yerushalayim uh, at least once. But... And we know that he had famous family members, his nephews, Marcus Tiberius Alexander, Julius Tiberius Alexander. These people rose to great positions of significance in the Roman Empire. Uh, Philo was a Roman Jewish citizen living in Alexandria, very much embedded in uh, his day, his generation, and a product of it. And Philo was also a humongous philosopher. He was reading everything. He'd read it all. He read all of Plato and Aristotle and everything in between. And he had some very, very important things to respond to that. And so what I want to look at is the way in which Philo uses what we call <laughs> Hellenistic syncretism. That is, that Philo is taking Jewish culture, in which he is also quite learned and embedded, although with some caveats I'll discuss in a second. And he's taking Jewish thought and Jewish approaches and he is welding them together 
with a number of philosophical traditions. First of all, there's Plato, and uh, Philo is completely immersed in Plato, but he is also a Stoic. And we don't have time to go into exactly everything that the Stoics were about, but basically the Stoics were emphasizing a number of different philosophical positions, but primarily those of virtue, if you recall the famous four virtues of the Stoics, which is uh, uh, prudence, uh, temperance, fortitude, and justice, and the creation of really refining and perfecting the individual to become more like an ethereal God in many ways. Uh, the Stoics had various metaphysical positions. To um, This is going to sound interesting from a philosophical point of view, but it's very important in terms of Philo, Philo's work, and that is that the Stoics were very into philosophical allegory. Now, what that means is they were taking some of the major myths uh, that belong to Greek culture, and they were saying, well, you've got the stories and you've got the narrative, but really the narrative of all these stories, whether you're in Homer or other forms of classic Greek myth, they are all indicative and teaching about virtue and about symbolic values about uh, the world and so on, philosophical issues. And we understand the meaning of the word allegory. And the Stoics spent a lot of time with, with Greek narrative and Greek myths, uh, working out their own cosmology allegorically inside all of those myths. And that's, that's a very important consideration when we're going to come to look at Philo. And he was also into Pythagorean mysticism, a bit working with numbers and other types of scientific observations to try and work out also the inner mystical meaning of all of this. And so Philo is bringing all of these things together. And obviously his thought is huge and complex. I left the uh, collected writings of Philo in the other room, but it's a, it's a big volume. And his philosophical discussions range across a variety of areas, very complex. You'll see if you research Philo, you'll see uh, lots of people with opinions on what Philo is talking about. But with the limited time we have today, I want to look more specifically at uh, two or three key issues of Philo's thought, because I want to show how Philo, on the one hand, uses uh, the resources of Judaism to respond to certain philosophical questions, and also how we can see how Philo is going to influence the journey we're going to have going forward. So the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of allegory. And although Jewish people today, 2,000 years after, are very used to the concept of allegory because we see allegory all the time. Every time you go to a Shabbos meal and someone says, oh, I've got a Dvar Torah, and they take an idea and they try and communicate an inner uh, moral message in the symbolism of Torah, that is an allegorical exercise that really the first time we see that is in Philo. It's a very kind of a different thing from Midrash. And I'll touch upon this later because Midrash, which is the dominant form of exegesis in, in Jewish thought, really takes as its starting point the text and then drives into the deeper meaning. Whereas Philo and the Stoics generally take a uh, conceived system that emerges from contemplation of the mind about virtue and about cosmology, and then sees that in the text. But except that for Philo, 
This really was the meaning of the text. And I'm going to look at that just briefly. One thing I do want to say, though, is that, and this is, <laughs> this is cute. We're not 100% sure, before I discuss how Philo allegorizes the Torah, many historians are not actually sure that Philo himself, despite being a leader of Alexandrian Jewry and a huge Jewish philosopher, could actually read Hebrew. Chances are he did, but uh, we're not 100% sure. He was ecstatic about the Bible in Greek. Uh, he was reading, of course, the Septuagint. He, uh, he knew Greek very well. He knew the Bible in Greek very well. But some of his etymologies of Hebrew words are a bit strange. And one of the things that's really big for him, but it's very telling, is, this, is his etymological discussion of the word Yisrael. For Philo, and I'm saying this at the beginning because it's important to understand this as we go through. For Philo, the word Yisrael is really a contraction of the phrase Ish Ro'e'el, the man who sees God. Because Israel, as it emerges in the biblical narrative, is the person becoming idealized through philosophical contemplation until they actually perceive the divine. And how he does this is he, in a huge discussion of allegorical meaning in the Torah, he starts with Adam and Eve. And of course, Adam represents reason and Eve represents the passions, the senses. And the classic middle platonic position is, is that reason is a product of, of up there and the senses and the passions are the product of down here and what we can see is the meeting between these two in the creation of Adam and Eve and of course that doesn't go so well because as the passions and the senses manage to overwhelm the reason and that ends in catastrophe and similarly uh, with the catastrophe of Cain and Abel Philo shows that this, once again, the struggle between revelation and reason, between virtue and wickedness. But the really interesting one is when he gets to the Avot, when he gets to the three patriarchs of the Jewish people. Because what we are now starting to see after the catastrophe, and the big catastrophe, of course, is the flood. And for Philo, Noah, Noah emerging from the flood, represents the stage of tranquility and in fact the word Noah means tranquility it is the stage of tranquility when a person comes out of their shattering catharsis to attempt to rebuild themselves as an idealized human being of virtue and that rebuilding takes place through the patriarchal project and it's very interesting because this is more or less what uh, Philo does with this I'm just going to uh, share again, and I'll show you um, if we look at this. So for Philo, and, and it's not so far away from how we might look at these things today when we talk about uh, building the ideal person. This could belong to a system of a, of a sports coach or a life coach. First of all, education and training. I mean, everything starts with education, and then you take the education and you apply it apply it to your natural talent. Notice that, and this is a very Greek thing, notice that Abraham comes first. 
You don't start with your talent and then go, oh, I've got talent, I'm going to do training. Everyone gets the same instructional education and training. But what you do is there is a whole project of work to apply that training to your own natural talent, but you're not yet complete. You're only complete. Jacob is the completion because that is practical experience. And that is what is going to perfect, perfect the combination of training and natural talent. Now, that might all seem very obvious today, but in the time of Philo, that's a big Kiddush. So, you could actually write a self-help book today just based on the philosophy of Philo, although you'd have to wade through thousands of pages to extract it. But Philo is allegorizing the whole Torah, and of course, it doesn't stop with Jacob, because the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate individual that emerges from this of course, is symbolized by Moses. Uh, Philo is obsessed with Moses. He loves Moses. He loves Moshe. He loves Moses. And Moses is the one that, that really arrives at the, at the vision of the divine and the perfection of, of his virtues and so on. So the Torah becomes allegorized. Stoic allegory is a huge influential influence in Philo. It's a huge series of questions Stoic allegory is asking about cosmological myth. And Philo's allegorization is the response. What is interesting is, is that very, very little, if any, of Philo's insights made their way into the mainstream of Chazal, of the Talmudic project. We don't find really any of those insights. It was kept entirely separate. But, as we will see with the next point, is that, of course, it was picked up by another religion very, very extensively. And that comes to the next point I want to cover, which is perhaps Philo's most famous contribution as a philosopher. And you've got to realize that Philo was classed in a period of time which is called Middle Platonism. And the problem in Middle Platonism was this. The problem that the philosophers were having with Plato is that, okay, we've got this realm of ideal forms up there, and we've got this pluralistic corrupt reality here, but there is no connection between the two. How do we bridge the gap? And this is a big problem for what? For us. It's a big problem for revealed religions. And given the fact that we're talking about the first century CE, so there's no Christianity yet, there's no Islam, we're it. And we are the ones absorbing this challenge on behalf of Abrahamic covenantal revealed religions. If God is all the way up there and we've got this corrupt reality down here and there's no bridge between, what are you talking about that the divine is revealed, that the divine uh, has an interaction with human beings? How does that work as the Torah tells us? How does that even happen in the philosophical system of Plato? So some middle Platonists were developing a concept which they call the world soul, the anima mundi, which is kind of very amorphous concept. And really Philo is the first to really work with that and concretize what an intermediate being between God and the world would look like. And he calls this intermediate entity, not being an intermediate entity, he calls the Logos. The Logos, which means, well, the word, but Logos is, a, is, is, is itself a word that is very 
complex and difficult to translate. That's why people call it the Logos. But it implies uh, divine speech, divine creativity, divine wisdom. And what it is, is that is embedded in reality. Philo was absolutely uncompromisingly transcendent in his view of God himself. God itself is utterly unknowable, totally beyond the world. Plato would have been happy with that. I mean, in a general sense, the Platonists were having a better time, as we'll see in subsequent talks with revealed religions, because the realm of ideal forms could be analogous to heaven and so on. But in bridging the gap, God itself, completely unknowable and above. So God uh, and the world need an intermediary, and that is the divine speech or the divine wisdom, the divine logos, which is both a, in a sense, a an extension of God, but not an essence of God, and is embedded in the world. Now, <laughs> that all sounds very well, but the problem is, is that Philo... <laughs> Has got me has got the logos doing many many different things many different things. First of all, uh, it's a divine creative principle, so it's like a blueprint of creation. This is an idea that's familiar to us. Oh, by the way, I've got a graphic. I'll just show you what the uh, what the what the logos looks like because I've 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 done this amazing graphic. I want to show you. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. This is this is me at 2 a.m. last night drawing you a map of the Logos. So basically, the Logos is a divine creative principle, as you can see, and it's a blueprint of the world, an idea that was taken up by later Jewish thinkers, and even in Midrash will tell you that, and in the Zohar, that God looks in the Torah and creates the world. This is a very influential idea of the blueprint of the world. But the Logos is also effectively the Torah. It is divine speech and divine wisdom embodied in divine speech coming in to not only create the world, but to address itself specific, specifically uh, to, the, to human beings. And also, uh, Philo is also going to go and tell you that the Logos is, is also acting in a more active sense. It's also an advocate on behalf of people and it's their conscience. He sees it emerging in different angelic figures which he allegorizes in Torah, using allegory again, that, the, that, that, that these angelic figures prop humanity and guide humanity. The Logos has all of these functions. But it's more interesting philosophical position that's going to be tremendously influential is... Uh, is as blueprint for creation and as a conduit for divine wisdom and an intermediary. Now, this took some time to be absorbed into Jewish thought and it does emerge in Jewish thought, but early, the fathers of the early Christian church uh, obviously found this incredibly exciting because, you know, oh, you've got an intermediary between God and the world. Well, what happens if that intermediary is actually embodied in flesh and so on? And that's why the book of John will tell you, uh, not that this is a lecture on uh, Christian theology, but it's very interesting because uh, not that long after Philo, we've got John saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. So in other words, they, this idea is going to go on, and not just in John, but in subsequent Christian thinkers. But in Jewish thought, 
Uh, we get very, very careful. We have to be very careful about intermediate beings between God and the world. Although that idea is absorbed and emerges in other ways. In the 12th century, people are talking about the concept of kavod. And we're going to look at some of those also intermediate beings. And the other thing that we need to realize is that Philo is, is all, I mean, Philo's got other philosophical positions, all of which, in a sense, influence his discussion of the Logos. There's a big discussion that Philo gets into, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention this because I wasn't going to talk, I'm going to mention it because we're going to come back to this later, and so I want to just ground this at the moment. One of the big philosophical challenges that Philo is engaging with is the problem of, and <laughs> this is going to sound archaic to some of you, or to others it will be exciting, but it's the problem of the eternity of the world. The problem of the eternity of the world. Now, today, 2020, we take it for granted, and we have taken it for granted for at least the last thousand years in Jewish thought, perhaps longer, that the world was created from nothing. Yesh me'ayin, we call that ex nihilo, something from nothing. And that the first sentence of the Torah says God created the world, so the world did not, is not coterminous with God, it's not eternal, only God is eternal, the world was created, but from nothing. But that's a later idea, philosophically. Philo would have told you, uh, as would have all good Platonics, that no, the world is made from matter, which is eternal. Matter is eternal. What we mean by creation is that divine, the divine as for, imprints form and the form of a reality, perfect or otherwise, imprints upon matter. That is the process of creation. When we say Bereshit Barai Elohim, that God in the beginning, in the beginning God created, that's the imprint of form on matter. But the matter itself is eternal. What's interesting about this is that this is not such an archaic argument because this discussion is still happening really today. Even in 21st century cosmology and theoretical physics, uh, how, you know, the beginning of the beginning of the universe. And it's not such a silly thing to say that matter is eternal. Uh, first of all, time starts with the Big Bang just like matter does, just like space does. And also we don't know uh, what, what was happening prior to that, multiverses, all types of things are happening. But even if you want to be, even if you want to not go down that road, you can realize, and this is a distinction we're going to make between Philo and someone later like Maimonides, you can realize that if God is outside time, and we are all told that God is outside time, then there's no problem with the matter, with the universe being eternal, because Eternity is a temporal concept and it exists inside time. Where you have time, you have eternity in the bubble of time and the earth is eternal. God is outside time. But 
it's an issue that is going to emerge later on. Maimonides and so on are not going to like this approach. For them, the world is not created out of some pre-existent primordial eternal matter. It is in fact created not yesh yesh, it's created yesh me'ayin. It's the whole universe is created gazap out of nothing at a specific point. And uh, that becomes a dominant paradigm in Jewish philosophy later. But really that discussion is kicked off by, by Philo who, was, who simply assumes from the Platonic perspective that, the, that matter is eternal. You see, and ultimately it's important to realize that Philo is distinguishing himself from the Stoics. Because Philo is not telling you that you need to become <laughs> the perfect God. It's not your job to become God. Your job is to become the best possible human being that you can. Your pursuit of the virtues is going to purify you and enlighten you as a human being. Because at the end of the day, you are of matter and you are of the senses. There's a beautiful quote here, actually, that I, I, I found by a 20th century Jewish uh, writer on Jewish philosophy called Stephen Katz. And I tried different ways to encapsulate this, but I just want to read it because it's such a stunning statement. The sharp contrast between the self-loving man and the God-loving man is symbolized by Cain and Abel. So Philo does that. He takes Cain and Abel and he says, well, one's the self-loving man and one is the God-loving man. But that contrast is utterly foreign to the Stoics who viewed the self of man as his divine part. In other words, the Stoics thought that man was actually capable of being, in a sense, divine. But Philo is coming to turn the nothing of God into the nothing of the human. At the end of the day, the humility and the, and the bitul and the self-annulment of the human being and his passions is the ultimate project in order to arrive at the, the, the ecstasy of the virtuous life, if you like, with different types of end goals there. Uh, and the true origin of the passions, and this is also different from other aspects of Greek philosophy, that the true origin of the passions for Philo uh, is not what other Greek philosophers had thought that passions and, and, and sensual errors arrive from faulty reasoning, but that they actually lie inside matter itself. It's the realization that, that a human being and everything in this world has inherently things that are going to be aspects of matter. The passions themselves are not evil. And this is an idea that's also going to be reflected in Chazal, who tell us that the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination in a human being, is in every human being. And it's only a bad thing if you let it rule over you. But if you use the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, and... Not even best translated as evil inclination, but the passions and lusts 
of a human being, if you use those in the service of becoming a better human being, of fulfilling the commandments of God as they are outlined in the revealed Torah, then you are going to arrive at the ultimate human being. As the, the rabbis famously point out, if it wasn't for the, the passion of lust, for example, no one would even think of getting married and the world would not be regenerated. That is, a, that is an idea that would have been very uh, close to Philo and might have even been influenced by Philo's discussions uh, with Stoics and other middle Platonic thinkers about what these passions, what these senses, what these aspects of the animalistic part of being human is actually all about. They are not evil in themselves, but they are there because they're an inherent part of matter and human beings who have reason, are able to overcome them, purify them, and become the best human beings that they can. So we're already at the end, and I just wanted to do this short excursus into, into Philo. Uh, and 45 minutes obviously allows us to be very, very concise, but very focused on Philo. And normally I would go from Philo and show how that develops into the next major phase of Neoplatonism, which is going to really take that journey further, the whole platonic discussion between how we bridge, how we bridge heaven and earth. And that's going to be the exciting story next week. Thank you for listening to that. And I hope you all stay safe and well. And I urge you to have a look at Philo. Just remember those things, Stoic allegory, Logos, responding to Platonism, responding to the Stoics, but at the same time doing that with a full awareness of the importance of the revealed tradition of Torah, which is the ongoing continuum always of the Jewish people. All the best. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.